Good morning, guys. Hey, while you guys are grabbing your seats, why don't you guys do me a favor, grab your Bibles and open them up to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8, if you got a Bible this morning, grab them and open them up to Luke chapter 8, as that's where we're going to be spending some of our time uh, this morning in the Word. And uh, guys, I'm excited. I have the privilege of just sharing something with you guys that the Lord's put on my heart. The last even couple of years of my life, and something that He's continually growing me in, and just something I want to share with you guys this morning. So... Let's do this one more time before uh, we open up the word and dive into it. Let us, let's bow our heads one more time and let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this morning. Lord, I thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that your word is true, that your word is edifying, that it does not return void. And Lord, I pray that this morning, even as I get to speak on something you've been teaching me and that I've, I've even studied, Lord, would you even reveal something new to me this morning? You know, you, would you reveal it to the students as well and to, to everyone in this room? Lord, would you help us to understand your word? And Lord, would you help us to know you more this morning? We love you and we praise things in your name. And all God's children said? Amen. Amen. All right, like I said, Luke chapter 8, something that the Lord's been putting on my heart and something that I even wrestled with a lot of my life growing up. And some of you might have wrestled with this, this idea and some of you might not have yet, but you, I almost guarantee you will. And it's this idea of what does God want me to do with my life? Or oftentimes it's put as what is God's will for my life is what you'll hear people say oftentimes. And this question really stunts a lot of us, meaning it causes us to freeze because there's options in this world. There's so many things we could do. There's so many, you know, sports you could play. There's so many hobbies you could have. There's so many schools you could go to. There's so many uh, careers eventually in your life you could choose. And oftentimes, with so many options, we get stunted and think, well, with so many options, I'm just not going to do anything. Or I'm going to wait for God to tell me what to do. And newsflash, he doesn't always just tell you exactly what you're going to do. And so you get stuck and you don't do anything at all. But I'll tell you this, that as believers, as Christians, every single one of us has something that Christ is calling us to, something very, very important. It's our first priority overall, and that is to share the word of God. If you are a believer, we are called first and foremost to proclaim Christ wherever it is that we are. It doesn't matter what your job is or what school you go to or what sport you play or how old you are. The Bible tells us that our first priority as Christians is to obey Christ and to proclaim his word. And we see it time and time again in scripture. So like I said, open up Luke chapter 8. We're going to be in verse 26 that we're going to start. And this is a, a passage that may be familiar to some of you guys. You might not thought a lot of um, in the past. I know I didn't think a lot of it growing up. And it's Jesus has just calmed the storm on the Sea of Galilee. He's just said to the storm to stop, and it did. So he just proved his authority over nature, and he comes across, he gets to the other edge of the Sea of Galilee, and it says this in verse 26, then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite of Galilee, and when Jesus had stepped out on land, there he met a man from the city who had demons. And for a long time, he had worn no clothes, he had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. And when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said, with a loud voice, what do you have to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? 
I beg you, do not torment me, for he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him, and he was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break out of the bonds and be driven uh, by the demons into the desert. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command uh, them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let him enter these. So he gave them the permission. The demons came out of the man, and they entered the pigs, and a herd rushed, the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdmen saw, the herdsmen saw what had happened, they had fled and told it to the city and the country. Then the people went out to see what had happened, and they came to, to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. And the man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. So we've got this story of this guy who his entire life has been possessed by demons. Not just one, not just two, but it actually says thousands of demons. And he comes upon Jesus one day, and Jesus ends up healing him. Just like that, this guy is healed. And then... Jesus leaves. That's essentially the whole story. Jesus comes, heals a man, and he goes to leave. And this guy goes to Jesus and says, let me come with you. You have healed me. I want to be with you because you have done miraculous things. You have saved me. I need you. And most of us would think Jesus would say, yeah, come along. Come with me. That's great. But Jesus does something kind of interesting here. He says, no, go. He says, no, don't come with me. Not because he doesn't like this guy, not because he doesn't want him to be with him, but rather he gives him a task. He says in verse 38, uh, verse 39, he says, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And get this, verse 39, the end of it, it says this, and he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. He obeyed. He didn't look at Jesus and say, I can't tell anyone what you've done for me. I just learned about you. I can't tell people about you. I just met you for the first time today. I haven't known you more than 15 minutes. Jesus had a command for his life. He said, go home. Go and tell people what I have done for you. And he obeyed. This is a man who in the eyes of the world had no qualifications. He met zero requirements to what people in the church these days would say you need to proclaim Christ. This is a man who was possessed by a thousand demons. He didn't have a home. He lived a lot of his life without clothes. Most people, everyone in his life was afraid of him. It says that they used to bind him in chains and shackles and he would break out of them and they'd have to drive him out of the city because they were so afraid of him. And he didn't use any of those things as an excuse but rather he knew the saving power of Christ and his only response to that was, you're right, I have to go tell people about who you are because I know the transforming power it has. And he does. No excuses. 
He just obeyed. And so often we start disqualifying ourselves, whether it's we have a friend that doesn't know Christ, or maybe we even feel a little tug of the Holy Spirit saying, go talk to that person. And so often we start making excuses in our own life. Ah, you know, I, I haven't been a Christian that long. Or, you know, I actually, I don't know enough about the Bible. Or, you know, I'm just, I'm just not old enough. Or I don't speak that well. Friends, Christ doesn't care about any of those things. The call is obedience, and the only appropriate response is yes. The only appropriate response to Christ's call is to obey it. Another story for you guys. You don't have to turn there. I'll go there real quick. It's in Luke chapter 2. Or, sorry, Mark chapter 2, not Luke. And it's the story, again, a very familiar story to probably some of you guys. Of There's these four friends, and they have a fifth friend who's paralyzed and has been his entire life. And they hear that Jesus is coming to their town. Jesus is, is coming to where they are. And they go, man, we know about this Jesus guy. And we know he's the only one that can save our friend. We have to do everything possible to get our friend before Jesus. And so they, they go to the house that Jesus is at. And they get there. And for those of you who know the story, they, you know that the house was full. It was completely packed. They get there, and there's no standing room. People, the house is busting at the seams. There's, there's no room in the door. You can't even wiggle your way in. Nothing you could do. But their friends don't get there and then just go, well, we tried. And it, the, the house was full, and, you know, we, we carried him all this way, and now we're just going to carry him home because the house is full. There's nothing we could do. No, they didn't make excuses. They said, we know this is important. We know our friend needs Jesus. So what do we do? They carry him up to the roof. And then they get to the roof, and what do they do? They dig a hole in the roof and they, of a complete stranger's house. They dig a hole in the roof of this stranger's house, and they lower their friend down on his bed to the feet of Jesus. And this is, is crazy. Right here, it's in Luke or Mark 2, uh, verse 5. It says this. They laid him down in the bed... And when Jesus saw their faith, meaning the faith of the, the friends of the paralytic man, he said to the paralytic son, he said, son, your sins are forgiven. And then later in that passage, a few verses later, he goes on to actually heal the man. Meaning this guy who was a paralytic, he can get up and he can walk. A miraculous event. Something only Christ can do. But what I love is, is in that verse 5 where it says, And Jesus saw their faith. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. He didn't look at the friends of the paralyzed man and say, You know, because you guys are smart enough, or because you guys are rich enough, or because you guys were funny enough, or strong enough, or talented enough, your friend is healed. He said, No, because of your faith. Because they knew that only Christ could save. They knew they had to do everything to get their friend there. Because of the faith they put in Christ, not their own strength, not their own talents, not their own abilities, not their own identity, but in who Christ was. It says because of their faith, their friend was healed. These guys, the Bible doesn't talk about them anywhere else. It's not like these guys were, again, the, the richest people in their town or the funniest people around or they weren't the, you know, the government of their local, their local town or the most well-known people, the most popular people 
They were just four ordinary guys. The Bible doesn't even bother to give us their names. They just call them four friends. That's it. They were ordinary men who knew the power of Christ and said, we need to do everything in our ability to get our friend before him because that is what ultimately is going to save our friend. And they weren't looking for recognition. They didn't get recognition, really. Again, we don't even know their names, who they were. They just knew the power of Christ, that they were called to be obedient. And guess what? Their obedience paid off. Christ saved their friend. God uses people who rely on him. Because they knew they didn't have the power, but they knew Christ was, he, Christ did. And guys, the reality is that no one in this room is ever going to be smart enough or strong enough or rich enough or funny enough or speak well enough in our own eyes. We're always going to think we're not enough. You're always going to be able to make an excuse of why Christ can't use you. But we have to stop making excuses because, again, it is not our own selves that we should be relying upon. We should be relying on the power of Christ because he calls us to. The only requirement to be used by Christ is that you obey him. That's it. You just have to be willing to say yes when Christ calls you to obey. And when, he, when you say yes, he will do powerful things through you. I know it because I've seen it in my own life. And again, we see it time and time again in Scripture, whether that's through these friends in Mark, through the, the guy in Luke chapter 8, or you name it. All throughout Scripture, you see David defeating Goliath. You see armies that should not win, but do because the power of Christ is behind them. You see miraculous things happen, not because of great men and women, but because of faithful men and women, obedient men and women, who know the power of Christ that is behind them and that goes before them. 1 Corinthians one twenty seven says this. It says, But Christ uses what is foolish in the eyes of the world to shame the wise. And God uses what is weak in the eyes of the world to shame the strong. Another newsflash for you guys. The world looks at junior hires and thinks you guys are weak and thinks you guys are foolish. I'm sure you guys already know that though. People your whole life up until this point probably tell you, oh, you're just a kid. Oh, you're too young. Oh, you haven't matured fully yet. Your brain's not fully developed. But guess what? God doesn't care. So often, again, you see in Scripture, God using young people, using young teenagers, children, to proclaim his name and to do powerful things for Christ. Why? Because he uses what is weak in the eyes of the world to shame the strong. He uses what is foolish in the eyes of the world to shame the wise. Why? Because when he does that, his name is glorified and not our own. If the world sees us as foolish and God uses us to do a powerful thing, well, we know it didn't come from us, and the world does too. So what's the only explanation? It's God. Exactly. It's Christ. His name is glorified and not our own. 1 Timothy 4.12 says, it says, let no one look down upon you because you are young. It says, but rather, set the example to all the believers 
in word, in conduct, in deed, in faith, in purity, in love. When that was written, that wasn't just written to the people of that time, it is written to you and I today. Let no one look down on you because you are young. It says, but be the example to who? To all the believers. That means you guys are called to be the example of what it looks like to share the word of God, to love other people, to live pure lives, to speak well to others, even to your parents, even to your grandparents who might have, who might have been believers for 70 years. You're called to be the example to your pastor, to your peers, to your friends, your brothers and sisters, to everyone. It says to all the believers. We are called to set the example of what it looks like. Being young is no excuse. God uses young people. God uses everyone. Because again, remember why? To show his power and glory. He doesn't use us because we're capable. He uses us because we're uncapable. Because God doesn't like pride. God likes humility. And when we are not capable, we are forced to rely on him to be obedient to him. And when we do, his name is made known. And ultimately, Christ is glorified and not ourselves. A few years ago, I had an incredible opportunity to go to Nepal, which is a, it's a country in Asia. It, uh, it's right next to China. And right now in Nepal, it's illegal to spread Christianity. So, technically speaking, you're allowed to be a Christian, but if you are caught sharing the good news or trying to convert someone to be a Christian, you'll be thrown in prison. That's illegal. You're not allowed to do that. And on top of it, they make it the most undesirable thing to be a Christian. So, how they work, how their society works over there, they have different kind of levels. It's called the caste system. Different levels of, of what, uh, you know, your economic status is, what your status as a human is, all the way from the bottom, all the way to the top, which would be like, you're in charge, you have money, you have power, you have fame, you got it all, and everywhere in between. And in Nepal, if you claim to be a Christian, you are automatically seen as the lowest of the low, which means you're not even human. In fact, a cattle or a chicken would be more valuable than you are is what they would consider you if you're a Christian, if you claim to be a Christian over there. And I got to hang out with these men who are from Nepal, and they are Christians. And they're from the remotest villages in the Himalayan mountains. You can't get to it by car. You have to, you have to hike in for multiple days to get to where they live. And I, and I got to hang out with them. And uh, we, they, met with, they meet with a missionary. His name's Ben who actually trains them up to be a pastor, to be pastors in their villages. And these men have given up everything in their life. Some of them were at the top of, of the, the class society in Nepal. Some of them were the, the richest of the rich, and they have given it all up so far to where their families don't consider them a son anymore. They've lost their birthright. They don't get their name anymore. They don't share their family name. They get kicked out of their villages their family kicks them out and says, you're no longer a son or a brother. You don't belong here anymore. 
And these men have given up everything. And now what they do is they, they travel by foot for days on end with nothing on them except for the clothes on their back and a pen and a paper because they want to meet with Ben because they want to know more about Scripture. And they want to know about Scripture more so that they can go back home and they can share the good news with the parents that have excommunicated them, with the neighbors that no longer want to associate themselves with them, with people who look at them and look right past them because they think they're not a human anymore. And why do they do it? Because they have found the truth and they are so excited about it. And ultimately, they read this passage in Matthew 28. If you talk to them, they'll say, if you ask them why, why do you do it? Why do you give up everything? And they'll say, well, the Bible tells me to. It's Matthew 28, starting in verse 18. Again, a passage that might be familiar to many of you guys if you grew up in the church. It's called the Great Commission. And it's Jesus' final words to his disciples. Jesus has now died and resurrected, and he meets with his disciples one last time, and he says this. He says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. They go because Jesus commands them to go. Because Jesus' command to his disciples before he left the earth is his same command to us. Go into all nations, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. There is no prerequisites in this passage. This passage doesn't say go if you've been a believer for 10 years. Go if you went to Bible school. Go if you know all the right answers in Sunday school. Go if you're rich enough. Go if you're funny enough. No, it just says go. Jesus, is look, Jesus looks at a group of men who just deserted him. He died, and on the cross, they abandoned him. They were afraid. They left. But he doesn't look at them and say, you guys aren't able to now. Oh, no, you left me. You doubted me. You can't go. No, he looks at those same guys who doubted him, and he says, you guys know me. You know the power that I hold. You know who God is, so go. That's it. As his commandment to us is go. And that's the same commandment to these men in Nepal. They go because Jesus tells them to. And they know this. They know that also in Matthew, it says that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Meaning there are men and women all over this world that are waiting to hear the good news of Christ. They just need someone to tell them about it. Romans 10 says, how then will they hear if no one tells them? It tells us in Romans that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, but how will they call on the name of the Lord if they don't hear, and how will they hear if no one tells them? That is not someone else's responsibility to tell them. That is my responsibility, and that is your responsibility to tell them. We are all called to go. We are all called to share the good news of Christ. There's stories of, of tribes in Papua New Guinea of people begging for missionaries to come in because they've seen the impact that 
the knowledge of God has had on the tribes next door to them. They're begging people, come tell us about this God of yours. We want to know. We just don't know him, but we want to know about him because he seems incredible. Guys, there are, there are so many people who are lost. Do we feel that burden for the people that are lost? Do we understand that people who die without Christ are going to spend an eternity apart from him? They're going to spend an eternity in hell. That is the burden. And we do need to feel that. Because that is what should drive us, that there is a burden and that there is an urgency to this. And my prayer for myself and my prayer for you guys is that we would feel that burden more and more every single day. Because that is what should drive us into obedience. And if we understand truly that we know people in our lives that don't know Christ, and we understand what their fate is, you stop worrying about your prerequisites. You start worrying that you're not smart enough or capable enough because you know you're not. And the only thing that will save them is Christ. It's the same thing. The guys in, the guys in Luke, uh, the Luke 2 and Mark, or Luke 8 and Mark chapter 2, those guys didn't have any prerequisites. Remember, the guy was possessed by demons. Those friends were nothing special. They obeyed. And guess what? Christ changed lives through them because they were obedient. The Lord commands all of us to go. And like I said, there's a sense of urgency, and we find that urgency in Acts 17, 31. The Bible talks about that Christ is going to return, which is, to the believers, the greatest news ever, that one day Jesus is coming back to this earth to redeem all of it. And to a believer, that's great news. To the unbeliever, that means the end. That is eternal separation from Christ at that moment. The Bible says that Jesus is going to come back like a thief in the middle of the night. We're not going to expect it. We don't know when it's coming, but we do know that he is. And so the urgency is real because I know this. Every person in this room, I can say without a doubt, knows someone that doesn't know Christ. I know that every single one of you knows someone who doesn't know Jesus. Maybe it's someone in your own household. Maybe it's a parent, a sibling, a grandparent. Maybe it's a classmate, a, a teammate, someone in one of your clubs at school, whatever it may be. I know that we all know someone who doesn't know Christ. And if we don't tell them, who will? We can't wait for someone else to tell them. The Bible tells us that our days are numbered. It's, in fact, it says that our days are fleeting that we are all coming towards the end of our life. And we don't know when that's going to be. We are not promised tomorrow. I don't say that to scare you, but rather to instill a sense of urgency in my life and in yours. Because as we know that we're not promised tomorrow, I know that the people in my life that don't know Christ, they're not guaranteed tomorrow either. And if they don't know Christ and they die, their eternity is set apart from Christ. End of story. That's it. Eternity is real. And we need to share Christ. There is a real urgency. And so guys, what is holding us back? We have to let, we have to, let, we have to stop letting our insecurities hold us back. We have to stop 
whatever it is that comes to mind holding us back, whether it's I'm afraid to go or I'm afraid of my reputation. What are people going to think of me if I go and proclaim Christ? Are they going to think I'm weird? Am I going to say something wrong maybe? Or Man, what if, what if I don't know the right words to say? Well, again, the Bible tells us that God equips us to do his will. There's, there's nothing that we need to do except for be obedient to him. And guys, what, what about this? This is one that oftentimes scared me away. What if I go and share Christ with someone and it doesn't work? What if I go and share Christ and they say, yeah, I'm good, thanks for sharing, though? That'd be embarrassing, right? Well, no. Because obedience to Christ is not a numbers game. It's not, something that, it's not something that we're in control of. Again, Christ calls us to be obedient. Christ doesn't call us to change hearts and minds. That's his job. That's the power of the Holy Spirit that they'll do in the lives of people. Our job is to just be obedient. And a, a friend of mine often reminds me of this, that our impact on this earth We'll never know. We will never know what the impact of our obedience has in this lifetime. But we might know, but we will know in eternity. Meaning you might share Christ with someone and they might say no. But you never know what that one moment will do in their life 30 years down the road. Maybe you planted a seed that 30 years down the road, they remember that conversation they had with you and they go, man, I remember that. I remember when they shared Christ with me, and I, I do want to know about that God. And then they go and find, you know, maybe a local church or someone else they know who's a Christian. And because of that one conversation you have with them in middle school, they know Christ when they're 40. It's not our job to determine numbers. It's not our job to determine impact. That's Christ's job. We are just called to be obedient. And so again, stop using your insecurities as an excuse. Stop making excuses at all. Our call is to be obedient. And when we truly know Christ and the power that he holds, nothing should be able to stop us from going. Again, you look at the guy that we saw, we read about in Luke chapter 8. Been a Christian for maybe 15 minutes. Life-changing power is what he experienced. And he said, I gotta go. We don't spread the good news because we have to, but because we should want to, we should desire to, because we know that we were shown mercy from Christ. Someone told us. We didn't just stumble upon the gospel. Someone shared the good news with us, and we experienced God's mercy when we didn't deserve it, and we were clothed in his righteousness when we didn't deserve it. And so we... Why should we be so selfish to then not share with someone else? Christ followers proclaim Christ. Christians proclaim Christ. We need to proclaim Christ. Do we feel the burden? Do we understand the urgency that our days are numbered, that our family members' days are numbered, that our friends' are num days are numbered, that strangers' days are numbered, and eternity is real. And those, you have one of two options, either spend eternity with Christ or eternity apart from him. And we need to understand that, to feel the burden, to feel the urgency. I'll leave you guys with this.
Hebrews 13, verse 20 through 21, it says this. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, that the great shepherd of the sheep equip you with everything good for doing his will, and may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you yet again for your word. Lord, I thank you that your word is true. And God, I pray for everyone in this room this morning. Lord, would we feel a greater urgency to share your word? Lord, would that not just be empty words that we say, but God, truly, would you, would you put even a name on every single one of our hearts this morning? Lord, of someone that we know that doesn't know Christ, that needs to know Christ. And Lord, would we, would we pray for that person? Lord, would we, would we be intentional with how we talk to that person, how we act with that person? And Lord, would you give us the boldness to share your good news with them? Lord, would we throw aside anything that is hindering us from doing so, any insecurities, any fear of losing a relationship? But God, would we truly live out obedience to you and share your good news with those who we know don't know it? Lord, would we have a greater burden for the lost and would we understand the urgency behind it? Lord, we love you. We praise things in your, in your name, in your name alone. Amen.